Our scripture reading is taken from Paul's second letter to Timothy, chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. I'm reading from J.B. Phillips' paraphrase. I do solemnly charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead by his appearing in his kingdom, to preach the word of God. Never lose your sense of urgency, in season or out of season. Prove, correct, and encourage, using the utmost patience in your teaching. For the time is coming when men will not tolerate wholesome teaching. They will want something to tickle their own fancies, and they will collect teachers who will pander to their own desires. They will no longer listen to the truth, but will wander off after man-made fictions. For yourself, stand fast in all that you are doing, meeting whatever suffering this may involve. Go on steadily preaching the gospel and carry out to the full the commission that God gave you. As for me, I feel the last drops of my life are being poured out for God. The time for my departure has arrived. The glorious fight that God gave me I have fought. The course that I was set I have finished, and I have kept the faith. The future for me holds the crown of righteousness, which God, the true judge, will give to me at that day, and not, of course, only to me, but to all those who love what they have seen of him. Do your best to come to me as soon as you can. Demas, loving this present world, I fear, has left me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, and Titus is away in Delmata, only Luke is with me now. When you come, pick up Mark and bring him with you. I can certainly find a job for him here. I had to send Tychicus off to Ephesus, and please bring with you the cloak I left with Carpus at Troas, the books, and especially the parchment. Alexander the coppersmith did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will reward him for what he did. I should be very careful of him if I were you. He has been an obstinate opponent of our teaching. The first time I had to defend myself, no one was on my side. They all deserted me. God forgive them. Yet the Lord himself stood by me. He gave me strength to proclaim the message clearly and fully so that the Gentiles could hear it. And I was rescued from the lion's mouth. I am sure the Lord will rescue me from every evil plot and will keep me safe until I reach his heavenly kingdom. Glory be to him forever and ever. Amen. Give my love to Prisca and Aquila and Onesiphorus and his family. Erastus is still staying at Corinth, and Trophimus have I left at Miletus sick. Do your best to come before winter. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Amen. I've often wondered if I handed out little slips of paper and asked a congregation to write down on a piece of paper any sermon that they could ever remember, what it would look like. I wonder how many of us could point to one particular message that we'd ever heard 
that seems somehow to get hold of us and change our lives. In the history of preaching, the science of preaching is called homiletics. And in studying preaching, you have to read the great sermons of history. And in studying these, I have found several that crop up that are reprinted year after year and studied because of the enormous effect they have had and still have on the minds and hearts of men and women because they were such a true word from God. One of the most impressive of these sermons is in American history was a sermon preached by Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards is generally reckoned to have had the highest IQ of any person ever born on the North American continent. Jonathan Edwards preached on July the 8th, 1741, to a congregation a sermon that dealt with the wrath of God, but it had such an amazing effect upon the congregation assembled to hear it that a tremendous awakening began to break out in New England. The effects of that awakening are still felt and still studied by scholars, although that's been so long ago. There was another famous sermon, a sermon that did not deal so much with the wrath of God, but a sermon that dealt with the love of God. Many of you have perhaps read it. It was by Henry Drummond, and it's called The Greatest Thing in the World. Henry Drummond had left New College in Edinburgh and Scotland and had gone to follow a prominent evangelist whose name was Dwight Lyman Moody. One evening when Henry Drummond and Moody and the other members of this party of preachers were gathered together in a big living room. Someone asked Mr. Moody to conclude the day's work by reading a devotion and having a prayer. Mr. Moody was very tired, and he turned round to Henry Drummond, and he said, Henry, and he was only 24 or 5 years of age, Henry Drummond was at that time, he said, Henry, I'm preached out. He said, why don't you read something from the Bible and say a word and lead us in prayer? Henry Drummond reached in his pocket and he drew out a little pocket New Testament and he opened it to the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians. He read it and he began to explain its meaning. And then he talked about the love of God in Christ Jesus. And when he finished, Mr. Moody had great tears streaming down his face and Mr. Moody said, Henry, go to your room, sit down, and write out what you've said. I want you to come to Northfield in Massachusetts and give that to my students. Northfield was a conference center like Montreat. And the first time that that great message, the greatest thing in the world and the love of God, was given, it was given at Northfield, Massachusetts, at the conference ground of Mr. Moody's there. Then there is another great sermon one by Russell Conwell called Acres of Diamonds that shows the possibilities that are locked up in each individual. Russell Conwell had been in the American Civil War, a skeptic, an agnostic who ridiculed a humble little corporal who was assigned to be uh, his helper, his steward. He always noticed that his orderly, the corporal, would bend down on his knees each night and and pray, and he would read from the Bible, and Russell Conwell made fun of him. And then one day, one day this corporal flung his own body into the line of fire 
and absorbed bullets that would have killed Russell Conwell. And the corporal died. And when Russell Conwell saw him bleeding to death and realized the price that this man had paid for him to live, Russell Conwell picked up the corporal's Bible and began to read it. He was converted and became a tremendous Christian. He preached his famous sermon, Acres of Diamonds, all over America. Millions of dollars were collected by this man, and he used it to found Temple University in Philadelphia. And then there was also a man who had a profound influence on my life, and I never saw him face to face. A man by the name of Clarence Edward McCartney, and he has preached down here in Anderson Auditorium. Clarence Edward McCartney, on October the 10th, 1915, had been asked to lead devotions in Jefferson Medical College. The medical schools even had chapel in. And he went down to Jefferson Medical College. He walked into the chapel and he opened the Bible to the second letter of Paul to Timothy. And he spoke on the theme, Come Before Winter. And he insisted that there were things that we must do while we had the opportunity to do them. Or if we did not, then opportunity would flee from us. He spoke with such urgency and fervor that it had a great moving effect upon these young doctors. One young man went to his room and wrote a letter to his mother. One of those letters such as mothers delight in receiving, telling his mother how much he loved her and how sorry he was that he had become so involved in his studies that he had neglected her. Two days later, he received a Western Union telegram telling him to hurry home, that his mother was dying. He got there, and he was with his mother at the end in one of those scenes that if you ever go through it, you'll never forget it. And then when his mother had passed into eternity... They found under her pillow the letter which this young doctor had written to her, telling her of his love. And he was so grateful that his mother had received that letter. Well, Dr. McCartney's sermon had been the motivating factor behind that. Then I walked into a library at West Texas State College in Canyon, Texas. I'll never forget that October afternoon. I read what my favorite football team was doing. I read the sports page, and then I still do not recall exactly why, but I picked up a book, and in it there was a message by Clarence McCartney called Come Before Winter. It had such an effect on me that it has followed me all down through these years. And Dr. McCartney, great spirit that he was, would rejoice in anyone taking his idea. Now, the material that I put with it is my own material. But Dr. McCartney gave me the inspiration for this, and I want him to have credit for it up in heaven. <laughs> we used to have an old preacher out in Texas who said it didn't make any difference where a cow grazed as long as she gave her own milk. <laughs> <laughs> now then, Paul is in prison in Rome. He realizes that it will not be long until he will literally be offered up as a martyr for Jesus Christ. Paul was strong in friendships. And so he writes the last letter that he ever wrote, 2 Timothy, to a young minister of the gospel 
whose name was Timothy. Timothy we think of as timid because Paul earlier in this letter tells him to stir up the gift of God that is in him and to be enthusiastic. He was frail in health because Paul tells him to take a little wine for his stomach and he's often infirmity. Now he said take a little wine and he said take it for your stomach. So <laughs> remember the exegesis. <laughs> uh, the, uh, Timothy and Paul, and you know in studying Paul, Paul, you know, I'm always intrigued. One reason that I read those names to you a moment ago at the end of this letter is that this remarkable man of God had a tremendous capacity for winning friends. And Timothy was his friend. And he wrote to his young friend. And he wrote him a letter of wise counsel. He told Timothy in this letter how his time is nearly over and how Timothy must pick up the torch and carry on. He told him to hold fast to the truth of the gospel and to avoid dangerous error. He told him to be positively good and patient. He told him to flee useful lusts. He warned him of what to expect as a faithful preacher. He told him to safeguard these truths and be with a sense of urgency about his master's business. He warned him that the time would come when people would turn away from their ears and be turned unto fables. And Paul, I think, would have been a great follower of sports because the metaphors that he uses are energetic, powerful metaphors. He says, I have fought a good fight. I have fought a good fight. The course that was set out for me I have finished like a marathon runner, I have kept the faith. In golf, there is a famous saying, it's not how you drive, how you knock off that first ball on the tee, but it's how you arrive, how many strokes it takes you to put it in the cup. And the same is true in the Christian faith. It's not how you drive, it's how you arrive. And Paul tells this to Timothy, I have kept the faith. And then he tells him to come to him. He's cold in prison there in Rome. And he says he had an old coat that he had left at Carpus House in Troas to go by there and pick up that coat and bring it to him. And he said, be sure and bring my books. Bring the scrolls and the parchments. Bring me the sayings that, you, that, that have been recorded about Jesus. Bring me my Old Testament so that I can have it here to study and read in prison. And then he says those strange words, do thy diligence to come before winter. Now why before winter? Well, Timothy was off in Ephesus. And in order to get from Ephesus to Rome, he would have to set sail. He would have to go over some weather that could be very rough and stormy, as we know from that shipwreck through Paul one through which Paul once passed. And so Paul tells him to hurry before winter sets in and no ships can sail. Now what this tells us is this, that in order to be faithful and true to our family and to our friends, there are responsibilities that we need to carry out before winter comes. Before winter comes. Yesterday our oldest son went off to look at a college. The other night I had him stand up by me and I put my head up against his to see if he was taller than I was. 
And I got to thinking, my, they grow up in a hurry. They really grow quickly. Then they go away. I have responsibilities to, to him, to my family. The other day I was having a little trouble trying to figure out what to preach on, and I, <laughs> I called on, I asked my wife, I said, Honey, what do you think I ought to preach on this beautiful day like this? She said, Preach on why every man ought to take his family out on a beautiful day <laughs> for a picnic. <laughs> she had a great point. <laughs> and then she said, and let the chips fall where they may. <laughs> One of them hit me. I took them out on a picnic. <laughs> well, we have a responsibility to our family. We have an obligation there. Time will go by very quickly and we need to fulfill those obligations because as time slips away from us, I never saw a man who regretted spending too much time with his family, but I've seen plenty of people who regretted not spending enough. So this comes to us here, friends and family. Uh, there is also this remarkable fact that if Timothy had put it off and he had gone down to catch the boat and when he got there, some sailor had said, why the ports are closed, you'll have to wait till next spring to come. And so Timothy worried all through the winter, and then when spring came, he set sail, and he got to, to Italy, and he made his way up the Appian Way and came into Rome and found the dungeon, and he asked the soldiers, where is Paul? They said, we don't have anyone named Paul. And then finally, he went and found a little group of Christians, and he said, well, where's Paul? And Luke looks up and said, don't you know, Paul's dead. He waited for you to come. Every time he heard footsteps in the corridor, he thought that Timothy was coming. Every time the jailer turned the key in the lock, he thought it was you. Why didn't you come, Timothy? What if that had been the case? So there are responsibilities that we have to our friends. Friends, we need to be faithful to and to carry out those obligations. The other night I heard a man, preacher, quote from Mary Martin in the uh, musical South Pacific. A bell is not a bell until you ring it. A song is not a song until you sing it. And love is not love until you give it away. And that's true. No matter how much we may talk about our love for our family or our friends, love is not love until we give it away. Secondly, there are certain things that if we do not do while we have the opportunity to do them, they will never get done which have to do with our own character. America right now is in the midst of a great moral mudslide. Maybe the Jesus people can lead us back to purity and truth again. I hope so. Out in California recently, when those heavy rains came and the mud began to slide down the hills and fill up over the highways, do you know what caused it? There had been fires that burned up the trees and the shrubbery and the brush on the mountainside. And so when the heavy rains came, there were no roots to hold that earth, that dirt in place, and so down it slid and covered the highways and caused great havoc. 
The Ten Commandments are like ten great trees. The moral purity and truth which is taught by Jesus Christ are like the roots which can hold the soil of our nation intact and our own lives intact. If we let them be burned up in our lust and in our confusion, we will pay the price for it. There are times when we ought to take stock of ourselves and see if we should not begin now to amend our character. Rip Van Winkle. Rip Van Winkle was a drunk. You remember his famous story how he was on a drunk and went to sleep and slept through a revolution? Well, Rip used to say every time he would take a swig from the jug, he would say, I won't count this time. Well, William James, the, gay, the great psychologist, said, Rip might not count it, but nonetheless it would be counted anyway. It would be counted in his brain cells and it would be counted in every fiber of his memory system. And one day all of these would be marshaled out to meet him. Habit would be so great upon him that he would not be able to break it. Not long ago, I talked to a man. He sent for me. He lives in a home or lived in a home that cost over $100,000. He made $74,000 last year. He hasn't earned doctorate. Beside him was a very beautiful woman, physically, about 15 years younger than he was. He told me how he had started flirting with her. How she had been his mistress for a year and a half. How he had divorced his wife and left his three children and she had divorced her husband and left her two children. How they had now been married for all of two whole months and he couldn't stand her. He wanted to go back and undo the wreck he had made of his life and he put his head down in his hands like that and he cried till he shook all over. That man would give anything in the world if he could go back again and undo the harm and the damage that he has wrought upon his own soul. Oh, he's a church member, he's a Presbyterian and she's a church member, she's a Baptist. But what difference does that make? when there is no personal relationship to Jesus Christ that transforms your character, you don't have anything. You don't have anything unless it means something that has transformed your moral value system. Forget it. The moral mudslide, reformations that need to be made in character. When God speaks to us, we need to obey him promptly. That's the sign of John Calvin, an open hand with a heart with flames coming up on either side, and under it the Latin words, for I offer thee my heart promptly and sincerely. And John Calvin had a sudden conversion to Jesus Christ. Cross-grained, irritable Thomas Carlyle. After his death, used to pick up the piles of memos that his wife had edited for him. Jane Welch Carlyle had died. 
And he said to J.A. Freud, who was his biographer, he said, oh, to God, if I could only have her back for five minutes to tell her how sorry I am, how sorry I am for the things that I did. Robert Louis Stevenson. Robert Louis Stevenson got to the place where he hated to hear the sound of the church bells in Scotland. He loathed the Church of Scotland. He did not have a heart for Christ until finally a man of God came, amongst, uh, came among the group where he was in a Pacific island and talked to Robert Louis Stevenson simply in, childlike, in a childlike way about faith in Jesus. And Robert Louis Stevenson said, Oh, if I had only met you when I was a young man, how different my life would have been. Here, here is what Paul is seeking to tell Timothy to come before winter and what his message is saying to us is to get these things done that you need to do. And lastly, the voice of Jesus speaks to us. This past week, I heard a tremendous sermon a sermon on, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Learn of me. Made me want to found a school called Jesus College. Come and learn of me. Learn of Jesus. How do you learn of Jesus? Take my yoke upon you. Be yoked with me. Then you can learn of me. Be yoked with me. Then you can learn of me and you will find rest to your souls. Do you remember the story of the man who could not get into the water in time to be healed? There are certain times when Christ is very, very near. And if we do not respond at those times, we never respond. And he calls us. The voice of Jesus is calling. Calling us unto him. Calling us to surrender ourselves to him. And if we put it off, we put it off to our peril. I remember a poem that goes like this. He was going to be all that a mortal could be tomorrow. No one would be kinder or braver than he tomorrow. A friend who was troubled and weary he knew, who would be glad of a lift and who needed it too. On him he would call and see what he could do tomorrow. Each morning he'd stack up the letters he'd write tomorrow and think of the folks he would fill with delight tomorrow. T'was too bad indeed he was busy today and hadn't a moment to stop on his way. More time he would give to others, he'd say, tomorrow. The greatest of mortals this man would have been tomorrow. The world would have known him had he ever seen tomorrow. But the fact is he died and he faded from view and all that he left when living was through was a mountain of things he intended to do tomorrow. And so when the voice of Jesus calls to us in salvation, we need to listen to that voice. Today outside it's clear as a bell. If you climb up to the top of Lookout, you can see all the way to Mount Mitchell and see the white building of the radio station there, and you can even see the, the, the towers. It's that clear. 
the beautiful foliage that's out there today will not be there much longer. Autumn is a beautiful time, but it's a short time. The haze of Indian summer will pass away. The rains will begin to fall. The winds will blow. The frost will bite. And the leaves will be stripped away from the trees and sent swirling across the field. The streams that you see rippling by will freeze over like ice. Snow will lie in the hills and the uplands. So the message to us is come before winter. Fulfill your responsibilities, your obligations under God while you have the opportunity to come to him. Come before it's too late. Come before winter. Let us stand in prayer. O oh God, our Heavenly Father, while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed in thy presence. Some of us here are keenly aware of promises and promises which we have made and desires after good which have been kindled in us, which we have allowed to be snuffed out, and our souls feel convicted and barren in thy presence. And we call unto thee to have mercy upon us and to forgive us. And Father, where there is one heart who reaches out for thee today, wilt thou bless that heart and bless that person who will go someplace, someplace this day, and not put off a decision to allow Jesus to be truly Lord, and not put off a decision, O oh God, to yield more of life under his control, but respond in all of those ways which shall bring honor to thy name. God grant that many may do that this day before winter comes. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit our keeper and our guide, be and abide with you all now and forevermore.